Friends, we have another very special show for you, as we always do. Today, we have a guest, Kara Fitzpatrick, who is a journalist who's been covering lots of education stories, but more recently, she has written a book that I think is very important. It's a very true history and a great narrative around where school choice policy comes from in the United States, very much an American story that I think is important for us to know the background on so many of these policies that are in the news today that we don't always know the background on. The book is called The Death of Public School, How Conservatives Won the War Over Education in America. Kara is a Pulitzer Prize-winning local journalist from Florida, but has national appeal because she also has written for Chalkbeat, and now she has written this book. It's getting a lot of attention because she is a strong writer who isn't religious about her take on it. She's just religious about the facts. And she has written, I think, some of the most important pieces that give you a fair representation of what's going on in education. So we're very excited to have her on as a guest today. So let's jump right in your book, The Death of Public School, How Conservatives Won the War Over Education in America. is very timely. It comes at a time where we're having lots of conversations nationally about school choice without a lot of context. And much of the public just lives their life every day. They don't think about such a policy like this until it's necessary, until they have to make a school decision. And then choice starts to sound like this interesting concept. But you went all the way back. And I do want to start by asking you how you decided where you were going to start this story, because I've heard a progressive version of the school choice story and a conservative version of the school choice story and American history version of it. So you set out to write a book and you focus in on school choice. How do you know where to start the story? So I didn't know where to start the story. I had sort of heard two versions, as you allude to. I'd heard sort of this stylized, maybe conservative version of school choice where Milton Friedman writes an essay and has an idea in the 50s, and then sort of nothing happens, and then Milwaukee happens in 1990, And then we go from there. And then I'd also heard sort of the progressive version, which was that school choice has its origins in segregation in the South as a reaction to Brown versus Board. And I didn't know quite how to square those two things. Those are two very different sort of stories. And so I kind of started from there of looking into this. And then I realized, maybe too late, that in some ways you also could start the story like with the founding of the country. And so I I actually built a chronology at one point that I used throughout the book. And the start of the chronology was like Thomas Paine, Adam Smith. You know, it was like trying to figure out a date that you could attach to the start of this. And ultimately what I came down to was that it was interesting to start in the 50s because you did have Milton Friedman. You did have segregationists. And you also had a a priest, you know, you had this idea of religious liberty all at the same time. And some of those things could also allude back to, you know, the 1800s and to the founding of the country. And so that was the choice I made, but it was not as clear cut as I thought. No, way back then, Milton Friedman, well, this would have probably been after the 50s, but, you know, I know, remember there was an episode of the Donahue show for those that can remember all the way back to when Donahue was the powerhouse of all talk shows. He had Milton Friedman on once, and I only saw this last year because I was writing something about school choice. And it made me wonder how popular, like, you know, this is a professor, this is a guy, you know, an economist, this is a, you know, a person that if you're, you know, kind of into that sort of thing, you might know who this is. But, how dominant were these people that you you know that were crafting this big new policy talking about these big ideas 
you know, how much in the, did the public know that this was going on? So I missed the Donahue show. So I feel like that's an area of research that, uh, <laughs> that now I, I feel remiss that I didn't know about that. But, you know, when, when Milton Friedman first wrote his essay in the 50s, you know, the mid-50s, he was not as well known as he came to be. You know, he hadn't won the Nobel Prize yet. He was an economist at the University of Chicago. And not not to knock Milton Friedman, but his writing isn't exactly the the most gripping thing you've ever read. I, I hear people refer to the the essay about vouchers as a manifesto. And it does not read like a manifesto. It reads like an economist wrote an essay about school vouchers. But, you know, he was someone who I think really was interested in intellectual debate. And he was he was a fairly small person in stature, but he was he was this really sort of joyful, intelligent and also sort of combative debater. And so, you know, I think his stature grew over time. And at one point, uh, one of the things I did read was when he had an interview in, in Playboy magazine. And I was thinking about how f- sort of funny that was in a way to have an interview in Playboy and that this is where some people would be encountering <laughs> Milton Friedman's ideas, you know. And so I think, you know, towards the end of his life, he was an extremely well-known individual and he was credited with sort of reviving conservatism in a lot of ways. But in the beginning, he was, you know, he was not as well known. And he was also sort of, if he was known for something, it was kind of having almost like backwards ideas as far as being an economist went. So, you know, it's kind of interesting to see the trajectory there. When you were writing this and you were thinking about the pivotal characters, you know, both on the left and the right, I know Milton Friedman. I don't know him personally, but I know of him. You know, I know who this is when you talk about him. But there are other characters that you talk about that completely, if you hadn't wrote it, I wouldn't have known who they were. Did you find some principal people to the movement and to the cause that were kind of interesting to you beyond just the ones that we all know, the people that we know? Yeah. And also, I'm curious to know who you didn't know, because I I run into a lot of people who do know Milton Friedman. Maybe they know Polly Williams you know, from Wisconsin. A lot of people know Howard Fuller because he's still around and he's still very active. But one of the ones that I think is lesser known is Virgil Bloom, who is the priest that I mentioned in Milwaukee in the 50s, who was advocating for school vouchers or some kind of state aid to private religious education. And he, I was so interested in him because he he was making arguments for religious liberty and talking about how you could win at the Supreme Court under the idea of the of religious liberty of free exercise decades before that became what it is now and i thought that was really interesting he also you know he really thought catholics were being discriminated against he thought religious families were being discriminated against that you would pay taxes for a public education system but maybe your values would point you in the direction of a religious school and that you would essentially be paying twice You know, that was something that he was writing about in the 50s and 60s. He also was just kind of a like a curmudgeon. Um, He was a really intelligent, (laughs) he was a really intelligent guy, but he was kind of cranky with people who didn't agree with him. And his his letters in the archives are just some of them are just really entertaining reading as far as archival research goes. But he really felt strongly that Catholics could could be a political power. And he was very frustrated that not all Catholics like got on board with that idea. And so I really enjoyed him in a certain way. Mm-hmm. He was one that I didn't know much about and didn't know that there was a 
you know, a pivotal role for which his story would be. The other one was the, you know, I know who Clint Bullock is or was just from libertarian world, but I didn't know about his role in what you set up is kind of like a dynamic between a this versus this guy versus that guy thing with him and Robert. How do you say his last name? Channon or Channon? Channon. Channon. Yeah. Yeah. I did not know about this part of the story. So it might be interesting to talk a little bit about like, you know, there's a little bit of a road show and there's all these legal cases that are taking place. I didn't know anything about any of these, by the way. And I consider myself a, you know, a reasonably intelligent person who knows a lot about school choice. Maybe there's a lot about history. I don't know, but Tell me a little bit more about the Bullock Channon thing. Yeah, so I'm I'm kind of glad to hear that you you didn't actually because that's useful in a way to know because you know people who are really in the thick of it I feel like they know all of this stuff and so I'm always interested to hear what what maybe was a surprise. So Bullock is still not only around; he's on the Arizona State Supreme Court, uh, and Channon is retired. He's a bit older older than Clint, but I was. At the start of this, I didn't realize just how much the legal history was going to matter. <laughs> and, and perhaps if I had known, I might have made other life choices because it's really hard to untangle. But I, I got kind of interested in that. And I I started realizing, you know, nothing happens if you don't win at the courts, right? That's That's so important. And then the question of how you win at the courts is so important. But I also had this sort of awareness that perhaps my level of interest in it was a little wonkier than your average person out there. And so I was thinking about, well, how do you make that a little bit more engaging or how do you sort of get a reader to go through this with you when a lot of it is is pretty deep in the weeds, you know? And so I stumbled across the two of them sort of by accident. I read Clint wrote a memoir about about sort of he, it's, his book's called Voucher Wars, but sort of from his side, the, the these court cases. So that was one of the first books I read. And then I reached out to him fairly early on. And then Education Week actually wrote something about sort of the two of them and their like multi-state school choice battle. And I love the idea of these two very different men. You know, Robert Channon was older. He'd worked for the NEA, representing the NEA for basically his entire career. He was very much about the law. You know, that was his focus. We're not going to talk about policy. We're not going to talk about kids. We're going to talk about the law. And then you have Clint, who's younger and a little less experienced, very passionate, sort of this fiery conservative. And he, I think he was sort of, I think, actually a very clever strategist because he could see that it wasn't just about the law. Not really. It was also about winning over the public and sort of, so he was sort of operating on this idea of yes, the court, yes, the legal argument, but also sort of this court of public opinion. And so I just, I was really kind of captivated by the two of them. And so that's why I ended up kind of delving into that. And and I talked to both of them and really enjoyed and benefited from talking to both of them. And I just will say, uh, I was interviewing Robert Shannon and I said something along the lines of, you know, there's some some compelling arguments for school choice. And the other end of the phone was just like dead silence. I mean, just the, like, <laughs> like he, he did not think there were any compelling arguments for school choice. I mean, it was just dead silence. And I was like, this is so great that the two of them just really wholeheartedly believed and what they were arguing, you know, and so you could kind of use the two of them just to set up and knock down and, you know, go back and forth on some of the 
the arguments. But yeah, it was an awkward moment in an interview. I was like, so no, no, there's not. Never mind. <laughs> like, sorry, I said anything. <laughs> you know, what's funny about that is it's hard to find anybody on the other side that feels like there's a compelling argument to have one best system, you know, of public education. The, you know, the belief that many people on the left have that the system is like the cornerstone of democracy and that, you know, it's a public good and we can't break it up into any other pieces. It's hard to get, you know, get folks to see the benefit of that. I mean, I went in search of some kind of middle ground here and I did not find it. So, you know, I, I thought there was some, and, and especially in this moment, there doesn't seem to be, but no, you don't, I, I think when you're talking about sort of the real firm believers on both sides, there's, there's not much room there. When you say that though, I wonder if some of the people that you talk to in the book kind of represent something of a middle ground, like Ted Caldery and others who see a continuum of like choice, like a, you know, not too much of this and not too much of that. It feels like people like Ted Caldery in Minnesota, Joe Nathan, even Jenks, when you talk about Christopher Jenks going back to the new left, like back in those days, today would be considered kind of centrist, right? They would be possibly considered like, you know, in the middle. Uh, maybe. I mean, I don't know. Both both Joe Nathan and Ted Coldry are not people who are f in favor of private school choice, you know? So I guess in the sense that there's been a backlash against charters, maybe, but Jenks was... He also is still around, by the way. He's still a professor at Harvard. Jinx, I, you know, I don't know if he, he's sort of, he was in that progressive mold and, and what Polly Williams came to really view choice through. But he also, you know, he also at one point wrote a piece about how maybe, you know, maybe black people needed to create their own private school system in the same model that Catholics did. That's a somewhat radical mm -hmm. idea. Maybe it was mm -hmm. less radical in the 60s and 70s, but that's still a fairly. So I don't I don't know. I think to some extent that progressive middle ground of using vouchers as a as a means tested, very limited experimental, maybe that's the middle ground, but I don't know. You no, know, it's interesting. Maybe it's not a middle ground, but maybe it's what Howard Fuller one of my mentors and friends has always taught me about interest convergence, you know, and you know, he tells this kind of famous story about the Cold War era times. The United States was trying to tell the whole world about democracy and the benefits of democracy. And some of the communist countries were basically pointing out, yeah, but except for uh, the way you treat black people and the way that, you know, your civil rights abuses and all that, which caused a problem with the marketing of the country. And we were in a battle with the Cold War opponents. And it's interesting in that that became a moment of convergence with the civil rights leaders who were trying to push for civil rights law and the American marketers who wanted to show America being, you know, good. So they had to kind of advance civil rights. And that was a moment of convergence for those two groups that ne ne wouldn't necessarily under other circumstances work together. And the biggest example of that, I think in your book is the Polly Williams story, which, you know, I know that story. Many people wouldn't know that story. Polly Williams is a black nationalist. She's very much a leader of the black community and is unapologetic about wanting to advance the black community specifically. And that comes in, you know, she has a, a vision for better education, for better community policies. And she ends up working with Republicans, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. you know, and this becomes the strange bedfellows story of what gave us the school choice baby that we enjoy today, I think probably <laughs> comes from that story in Milwaukee. <laughs> and that story has some twists and turns and goes some different directions. But I think it's really important 
for me, that is a starting point of, of all that, because there was a, a right version, right wing version of what school choice could be and was before that. There was a barely kind of a left or left to center version of it. But with the Polly Williams story in Milwaukee and her working with some very conservative people and even a Republican governor, that was the real birth, I think, of a bipartisan-ish type of uh, <laughs> uh, relationship in school choice. So tell me more about that. Like, What fascinated you about that story? And do I oversell it by saying this is really the foundational story for where we are. I don't think you do. I agree with that. And I really I really came to conclude that we would not have the same school choice movement today that we have without Polly Williams. And I think perhaps she actually gets less credit than and maybe she deserves in part because she was a divisive figure, you know, and, and Howard Fuller has some good stories, I think, about that. And you see a little bit of it, obviously, in the in the book. But I've had, you know, it's interesting because I've had a couple of people reach out from sort of the traditional public school side who who very much want the story to be it's Milton Friedman, it's libertarians, it's billionaires, maybe because those are good bad guys in a way. I don't know. But what I thought was interesting was that it was more nuanced than that, you know, and that you would have someone like Polly work with someone like Tommy Thompson, you know, who was governor at the time. And, and, and actually because of her support and because she was a black Democrat, you know, for a little while, she was really kind of a darling of the conservative circuit. You know, people were flying her around and she was, she was speaking that places like Heritage. And that added some sort of media attention to it, I think. But what I thought was interesting about that was that in a lot of ways, what she was attracted to was sort of this progressive model that, as you said, had kind of a small blip in the in the 60s and 70s. She was very interested in this idea of school vouchers as something that would help low-income children and primarily Black and Latino low-income children. And she came at it not from a Milton Friedman sort of place, certainly not thinking of it in the same way that Tommy Thompson was or that maybe President Reagan had been before that. You know, she was looking at it as she's tried over and over to get the Milwaukee Public School District to do a a better job for its Black students and its low-income students. And she's fed up with integration policies that she thought were putting the burden on black families, but not necessarily having the outcomes that were promised. And she wasn't getting anywhere with it. You know, and at one point she, she was trying to push the idea of an all black school district carved out of Milwaukee public schools, which was hugely controversial at the time. And so she really kind of came to school vouchers as, okay, I've tried everything else. So maybe now, you know, I will work with Republicans and I will see what vouchers do for us. And and I just thought that was so interesting. And that also through her sort of journey and a little bit of her disillusionment with her allies, that you could see a lot of interesting things about choice today. And I think we should, you know, spell out a couple of the things that, so those are the things that made her kind of a good partner to some of those, the unholy alliance, some of those people on the right. The thing that kind of would eventually become troublesome is she really specifically was not 100% for universal school choice, right? Her her kind of, I think, line in the sand was it had to help low-income people and it had to be somewhat means-tested. 
And she definitely talked very specifically about not making this a subsidy for the wealthy to send their kids to private school, you know, especially people who would already send their kids to private school, which is something It's very interesting. Howard Fuller and I used to argue about this. He was more in the uh, Polly Williams camp and I was more in the camp of, listen, if it's good for us, it's good for everybody. And for us to be able to have what we want, we have to allow other people to have what they want too, right? That was my theory of it. Now, this is before I started thinking through the possibility that, you know, this would be a subsidy for people who are never in the public school system. And now some of the public school money would be subsidizing people that were never in the system. So 0.1 for Howard and Polly and 0.0 for me. Uh, <laughs> on that particular run and seeing where we are now. Cause I was like, that would never happen. You know, we would always put safeguards and that sort of thing. And I think they both, yeah. win that particular battle, what were some of the other things though, that she had at issues? You say the relationship starts breaking down at some point. She was all in, she was the darling, as you said, for a period of time, very conservative groups like the Bradley foundation and others are, you know, really supporting her and lifting her up as this great example. And, and if there was another one like her today, they would be lifting that person up too. Like if there was still a Cory Booker or somebody that they could fly around the country playing that role, they would do that today. But what two things, one, what made it start breaking down? And then two, as a person that definitely loves gossip, there's a part in your book where you talk about George Mitchell, <laughs> George Mitchell <laughs> kind of talking about her. And I felt like this is this. Now, this is tea. This is juicy. I had never heard. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. So tell me those two things. What what starts breaking things down for her and changing her mind about her friends? And then tell me more about this George Mitchell piece. This this might be the, the place where I have to go. I'm busy. I've got something that's come up. I've got to <laughs> the conversation. That was like, I mean, it's funny because I'm going to Milwaukee later this week to speak at Marquette and, and someone sent me, someone sent me the old news article that, that he didn't realize actually is in the book about George Mitchell and, and Polly's sort of semi, I mean, at the time, fairly public back and forth via the newspaper. But I think, you know, Polly had a very specific, as you say, a very specific vision for school vouchers for school choice. And Within like the first five years, even she starts kind of questioning where she thinks conservatives are taking this. And, you know, and at the time, conservatives were saying, no, 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 we don't want this to be for everyone. We're not we're not going in a universal Milton Friedman direction. And she she just kind of thought that that was the direction they were going in. I think also there might have been a little bit of personal ego involved you know, that she really felt like she had started something and that she was not as important to the movement as perhaps she had been in the beginning. So there might have been a little bit of, I don't want to say hurt feelings, but a little bit of sort of her own ego involved in that. But really, she felt like people were going to, that conservatives were going to send this in a direction of this is for everyone. And to her, it was not for everyone. You know, it was very specifically for low income children. And, and so that bothered her. And I think also when the Milwaukee program started getting a little bigger and when religious schools became involved, she did support religious schools becoming part of the program because initially it was only secular schools. She supported that. But part of her concern was in Milwaukee, most of the private school enrollment was white and so she was concerned then, okay, is this still going to be a program that's primarily for the children who weren't being well served by the Milwaukee Public School District, which was largely the low income black children. And so she was not like a quiet, subtle person. 
And, and so she made this really well known to everyone. And it created a lot of awkward tension at the time because this, the program was in the court system. And here you have this person who is the public face of it. And she's like raising her hand and raising some questions. She also had some accountability questions. You know, in the first early years of the program, some schools had abruptly closed down. And this was something that critics, you know, critics had talked about, well, what if we give public money to a private school and they're not running their finances well and they shut down? And then it happened. And I think Polly was much more because maybe she was getting phone calls from families. You know, she was involved in her community. I think she was a little bit more willing to engage with that and say, well, how do we stop that? How do we prevent that? From happening? What kind of regulations do we need to have? And a lot of conservative supporters were not in favor of a lot of regulations and accountability. So there was that whole question. And then the, the George Mitchell thing. George Mitchell was a, a longtime school choice supporter in Milwaukee and had also, you know, played a role in the program. His wife did as well. And, and there was just kind of this weird falling out after Polly had become a bit disillusioned with where it was going. And, and George kind of contended that she had been used. And he said this to, you know, a newspaper columnist. And I, I imagine the columnist was as excited as you were <laughs> and, and reached out to Polly, you know, to, to ask about this. And, you know, I thought it was interesting, though, because it's it's a charge that is leveled sometimes against black school choice supporters, that they're using you. And, you know, why don't you see this? Or why are you ignoring the fact that you're being used? And it's a little bit patronizing, I think, in a way, because Polly actually didn't feel that she had been used. She felt like she had created something for a specific purpose, and that its purpose was being, she said, hijacked. But she did not feel used. She didn't think she'd been duped. You know, she she always said she had a certain awareness that maybe her goals were not the same as her allies. But, you know, there was this sort of common interest. So I thought that was not just tea for the book, but I thought that actually said something larger about some of the things you hear in school choice conversation. Yeah, his real harsh comment was, you know, I think the reporter asked him, who do you think has been using Polly? And he said, who hasn't <laughs> been using Polly? And I just yeah. felt like that was Ouch. such a, a coarse <laughs> response. To your point, I think that is something that I've seen black advocates for choice have to respond to often, that you're you're being duped, you're being used, you're just a tool. You're either, you're like some variant of either like a shyster or, you know, it's, it's one of the black stereotypes. You're either a pimp, a shyster, a lackluster, not intelligent, you know, something deficient in some way, shape or form. It's not that you could possibly just have a different idea than other people have about this. It's, it's, it's one way or another, it's still, re you're responsible. Your ideas are, the responsibility for your ideas go back to somehow some white master somewhere. There are though, like, see, this is the thing where two things can be true. <laughs> there are cases where there are people who don't know much about the issues, who have a, a personal story to tell that's very useful for the people that push these policies. And they get sometimes folks involved in things that people of color specifically involved in events or places where they don't really know all of what's going on. And later they have a poly-like experience where something kind of changes their mind. And I'm speaking kind of close to home because I've, you know, I've been on my own journey with school choice. 
I'm very much like Polly in. I still think something needs to happen for black children. I do think something needs to happen to put the means of education more in the hands of black people and give us more kind of power over our own children. And, you know, there's a lot of ways that could be used as rhetoric, but it's just true. We have a long, unfinished story with people of color, specifically with African-Americans. And there's an asymmetrical level of control in the educational process when we're dealing with the traditional public schools. So, of course, I support choice, definitely support it for marginalized folks. But very much now I'm becoming more in a poly, I think, realm of these things. So, so I do want to, I, this isn't me picking bones with you, Kara, but this is just like to say, let's talk about this one piece. <laughs> I've been uh, waiting for it. I've no, been waiting no, for no, it. Listen, it on. <laughs> it's going to be a friend. This is about your ideas in your book. But the, so <laughs> there are so many people who are part of, I live in Minnesota. I'm very, the Minnesota charter school story is very important to me. I'm a Minnesotan. I believe we own a lot of this territory, but so many of the people that I know that were the foundational people to charter schools here in Minnesota, the original laws that were pe- being passed were not voucher people. As a matter of fact, there was like a sense among them that charter schools were a public school firewall against the call for vouchers, something of that. And I know this because I argued with them for years when I was, you know, like a choice evangelist and a you know universal choice evangelist. I would always think that they were kind of like the, the lackluster choice people. They just wanted charter schools and charters weren't fully, <laughs> you know, weren't fully choicey enough for me. So, so do you think it's fair to lump them in though with the thing that they get, I don't want to say teased about, but the right always, you know, includes charters in the voucher debate and they make charters a right wing thing. They make charters like synonymous with Betsy DeVos when in actuality, the foundation of charter schools was as a public school choice option specifically to combat the, you know, the call for vouchers. Yeah. I mean, this is something I was interested in because, and I think I get it that, you know, in the book, this idea of sort of public school choice versus private school choice, because I think when Republicans somewhat early on were calling for vouchers, Democrats didn't necessarily have a response, like something to counter that with other than we love our traditional public schools, which when you're talking about reform, doesn't necessarily, it's not an answer. And so I think in some ways the answer became charter schools, you know, and you see some of the early advocates talk about that, this idea that we like choice, but we like public choice, you know, choice with some accountability, choice that's part of the public system. And so it really was, you know, this idea of of these two things sort of bouncing up against each other. And charter schools were sort of a strange concept that had been percolating in some ways. Like Christopher Jenks actually pitched something that sounded a bit like charter schools decades earlier than they happened. And you had Albert Schenker, you know, who is a well-known labor leader come out and and talk about them, which gave it kind of this national prominence, even though he very quickly turned away from the idea. But one of the things I thought was interesting is you have people like Ted Coldery and Joe Nathan, you know, and Ember Rice Young talking about charter schools as another type of public school, but sort of free from this bureaucracy. I also was looking at it, though, and saying, okay, so it's another type of public school, but in some ways, doesn't it do the same thing, right? It's directing public dollars to an education outside of the traditional system. And that's an interesting idea that can go in unexpected 
directions. You know, I, in a way, those are the same idea as a, as a voucher because you're giving someone an option outside of this system that exists. And so I thought that's interesting and also something that charter school people really don't like to make that, you know, they don't think those are the same. They really don't want to make that the same. But now, just in the last like six months, we have this idea of religious charter schools. And the early advocates of charter schools are freaking out because this is not at all what they intended. And this is not the direction they wanted to go. But you can kind of see, especially with the legal history, why we're talking about it. And so I mean, that, that happened so recently, it's not even in the book. But understanding that legal history, I was like, okay, so I can see why you would make this argument. And in a way, it felt kind of somewhat validating of some of the ideas I was grappling with, because they're similar ideas in a way, school vouchers and charter schools, if you really think about what it's doing, the mechanism, what it's achieving, and whether or not what it's achieving replaces the system. You know, if there get to be so many charter schools that all of the kids are enrolled in the charter schools and you don't have a lot of traditional public schools left. So it's, it's sort of an interesting idea that one could replace the other. And, and that was something similar to what I was thinking about with vouchers in a way. I might have just gone way into the wonkiness. <laughs> no, no, no. This is good because I feel like it's something that I fight a lot. I definitely see charter schools as a complete public option. I think where I get hung up a little bit on it is that I think people think that public schools, when we say the traditional schools, they think that means one thing. They think that traditional schools are kind of like one idyllic version of, you know, you walk from your house to a school that's just your neighborhood going to that school and it only looks one mm. way. I mean, you mentioned in your book things about like the uh, Alum Rock Project, which was a fully public demonstration project of choice. Well, in the 60s and the 70s, they were experimenting with all kinds of, you know, to, to say call something traditional public schools. I grew up in the 70s, so <laughs> I saw some very weird things that weren't like the 1950s Leave it to Beaver version of like walking to a neighborhood school. There were all these kind of like hippie schools and there's just all kinds of stuff that was going on that was all public, though. It was all still, you know, and that's where Magnet comes from. So when we talk about like, you know, charters being a different kind of school because it's not the traditional. Well, I mean, you could say the same thing about magnet schools for sure. The thing that you're bringing up that I, I think is complicating now are these cases around like the religious charter schools, for instance, you know, the arguments for them around things like, well, you know, a charter school might not be fully a public actor for very complex reasons to people listening right now. The law in each state very clearly calls charter schools a public school that does X, fill in the blank with whatever it is that they do. Just like a magnet school is a public school that offers a special curriculum or a special program of some sort that doesn't have to play by the same rules. Uh, let's just be clear. Magnet schools do not have to play by the same rules as district schools or neighborhood schools. They can discriminate against kids on the basis of race. People listening to this right now, Please look this up. New Haven schools, you can tell a kid that they can't go in because they're black and that the seats in that school are being held for white students. That's still legal in the United States to do that when you're a magnet. But this religious thing thing, I think, is kind of like it's going to be a conundrum for a lot of people. And this is what I like in the religious part of this, like religious charters. People might see that as a reason to say, see, those 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 charter schools aren't if if a charter school could even fight to be this, they might not be public. Maybe. That feels like a good argument, except for, I mean, you have places like Texas that are trying to put Christo-fascist stuff into the regular district schools, like you have to put the Ten Commandments on the wall. 
right, in a public school. You know, there's talk now of bringing in religious kind of programming into the schools again and whatever. So that just tells me whatever the apparatus is, these people that are doing this, they could do it to any apparatus. They could do it to any public apparatus. They could take over a school board and put all kinds of Christo fascist stuff into a school district or a whole state like Texas. Is that compelling to you at all? <laughs> I'm trying this argument out on you. Is that compelling at all? <laughs> you just covered a lot of you covered a lot of ground there. So I was like thinking it over. I think, you know, I think it's one thing that is sort of sort of interesting that you mentioned at the start that I think is important is this idea that public school districts already have all of these different programs. You know, magnet schools were for integration, how well that's worked. You know, you can have a whole show about that and some of the ways that that doesn't work. You have the zone neighborhood schools, you have career and technical programs. A lot of states also have dual enrollment for high school kids that they can go take classes at the college. You know, that was fought by some some traditional public ed folks and that's all over the place now. You know, like there there are a number of different ways that the public school system has something other than this idea of this sort of, you know, school on the hill that people have in their minds. And I mentioned this in the introduction, but I think that the ways that those some of those programs sort of essentially discriminate against people is what gives some power to the school choice arguments. You know, if there is a fantastic magnet school in your neighborhood that you can't get into and it's peeling away a lot of money and programming and and maybe really engaged families from the neighborhood school, which I've, you know, as a reporter, I've written about things like that. That in itself kind of is an argument for choice, right? And families run into that. It's a public school. We're supposed to take everyone, but not this public school over here. And, and I think that... People who really advocate for the traditional system maybe need to grapple with that more sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, the, mm -hmm. the ways that the public system excludes people. So that's a whole, whole piece of what was in my mind while you were talking. You know, with the charter school thing, it gets into this like really murky legal territory where, yes, by state law, charter schools are supposed to be public schools and that's how they're supposed to function. But then every state has kind of a different way that it addresses public education in the constitution, in their state constitution. And some of them say we need to have a uniform system of public education. And some of them say other things. And, and that ends up playing a role in these, these lawsuits. And it did for school vouchers. And now it seems like it's going to be a very real thing as part of this conversation about religious charter schools. And I have no idea where any of that's going to go, you know, but it's it's interesting that that's kind of the journey that charter schools have taken from the mm -hmm. original pitch for them, which was a different kind of public school. Yeah. Being a Minnesotan, I got to go with the Minnesota version. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think there are a lot of people who are involved in that who are somewhat appalled at, at what's happening right now, you know, and I've checked in with some of them. You know, I, I talked to to Ember Rice got young not that long ago. And, and she was saying that if you're going to have a religious charter school, you have to call it something else because this is not a charter school, you know, and it's not like she's changed her mind about that. And so, you know, that, that is interesting, but I mean, Oklahoma just took the next step towards a Catholic online charter school. Opening. Yeah. Ember actually is a good one to point out for folks. She has a book called Zero Chance of Passage, which is 
I think, a very good insiderish. If you like gossip like I do, it's a very big gossipy insiderish book around who was who was at the table <laughs> when charter schools were being made. And she was a she was the Democratic representative who was getting it across the finish line, which, you know, talk about strange bedfellows. But she often calls it she doesn't even call them charter schools. Often she calls them chartered schools, meaning that every all the power of whatever you are is in your charter, your relationship with the state and the state being interested in you being fully public demands that you have some accountability, that you honor civil rights, you know, just a lot of core things that are basic to to a public school that are being fought now. So we are the Minnesota model, but you have other places like North Carolina, where I think there was a charter that was turned down by the charter authorities. They turned it down because they thought it was not patriotic enough, that it was a Native American charter school that wanted to open serving specifically Native American students in North Carolina. And the the more right of center charter folks there were just like, no, this isn't patriotic enough. We don't like the way that you're going to tell, you're going to teach history. That's interesting. I haven't I'll send you the link. Yeah, I was going to say, I haven't, I haven't seen that one. But I was going to say, there are, though, in other states, you know, sort of culturally affirming charters. You know, you have Hawaiian charters that are teaching Hawaiian language and trying to preserve some of that you know, history and culture. And I think that's actually really interesting. But I think Hawaii also has traditional public schools that are that are doing that as well. So it's not necessarily an innovation. It's just something that's important to a lot of Hawaiian families. But I haven't seen the one about North Carolina. Although I was also, I was going to say not to knock Minnesotans, but the whole chartered school, like it's just, it's never going to take off. Like if the moment <laughs> passed, like 30 it? years ago, the moment passed, just, just, just let it go. Like no one's calling it chartered schools. I heard that from everyone. I was like, this is what's important about not. that. Especially, you know, I feel like it's the law that I have to hold up Minnesota. Uh, oh, no, no, we're not going to keep going about it. Here's, here's, here's what I have to hold up about that. No. I say this often about charter schools in that, first of all, there's no such thing as a charter school like it's one thing. And I think somewhere in your, in your book, you do say something about charter schools being talked about like they're a monolith or a monolithic. I don't know if that's in your book. Maybe that's something else that I just read recently. Yes. Yeah, it is. No, it yeah, is. Cause like, I mean... For people no, who love there. gossip, I mean, I think Minnesota is probably the most hated charter school market in the country because states like different things. They like to do things very differently. And we have a lot of the single site, non-network school charter schools, single site, mom and pop. We have a Hmong one. We have a Somali one. We have a Chinese immersion one. We have very specific, you know, ethnic schools. We have five that are authorized by the teachers union. So we're just a weird market. And I think Charter World looks at us down on us, even though we're the birthplace of it. Thank you very much. We gave you everything that you people even enjoy right now. <laughs> um, but thinking about our states and how much we're going to show some state pride on these things. What's interesting to me is that you have such a background, a long background on covering Florida politics. And right now, Florida is being touted as the we want to do to America what we did in Florida. And that's kind of like the, you know, um, some of the political kind of rhetoric is Florida is a very big success story. It's like the, you know, the shining state on the hill when it comes to choice and charters and just all of that it doesn't show up a ton in your book, even though you have a big background on it. And it almost feels like it is one state version of, it's almost like what charter schools are to New Orleans school choices to Florida in some ways. I don't know if that's an overestimate, you know, or an overreach, but 
Tell me a little bit, you know, why Florida didn't show up as much. Well, Florida's in there. I kind of went back and forth on which was more important, sort of Florida or Arizona. And then actually Arizona's not in there in, in, in like a real meaningful, let's tell the story of the state sort of way. Florida, I think, gets a little bit more attention. And I think, you know, one of the things that I thought was important about Florida is it's it's not the first and it's not the second and it's not like the first federal program, you know, for for as large a role as they play right now and, and are consuming so much of the sort of media attention, you know, in part because of some of the other things that Governor DeSantis is doing there. What I was sort of looking for in writing the history and not writing an encyclopedia, but something that was a narrative that someone might follow who has no connection to this is where are the places that were most important as far as sort of winning, as I, you know, say in it, and kind of telling this story of of the different sort of sub-threads of choice. And so obviously Milwaukee is hugely important and Polly Williams is hugely important. And Cleveland, of course, because it's the case that goes before the Supreme Court, you know, and that legal history. And so Florida kind of was, I don't think it was overlooked, but one of the things that was important there for me was this idea of attaching accountability to school vouchers, which Jeb Bush did, you know, and, and also if you look at Florida, it has this very long history with school choice. And so you could sort of say, well, the trajectory of choice maybe is told through Florida's story. This might be a direction where the whole movement is headed. Mm-hmm. But, but as far as the book goes, what I thought was most important was this idea of attaching accountability to school choice, which Jeb Bush did very deliberately was was to say, okay, if we rate the schools, the traditional public schools, A to F, and we base this on test scores, then the kids, all the kids, regardless of income in a failing school, should have the ability to leave through a voucher. And that I thought was actually kind of a new idea in a way from Milwaukee and from Cleveland. And so I thought that was important to highlight. The other thing that Florida sort of highlighted somewhat early on was that they had in the in the early years a lot of fraud with their program. And there were these conversations that Republican lawmakers were having about what to do about that. You know, what, how should this look? How should we have accountability? Should we have any accountability? Should we have background checks? Should we not, you know, there were those kind of granular conversations. And I highlighted some of that because I thought that that was an important thing that comes up with all of these programs. And so you could kind of tell it a little bit through Florida um, and it comes up in some other places, but, but Florida was one where you could actually look at the coverage of the legislative session and see Republicans arguing about it. And I thought that was interesting because I don't think you see as much sort of debate and dissent among Republicans these days, as you once did around choice and what choice should look like. It, it feels like we're not getting the whole story because there's such a, a the public facing story is more one of unity. You don't get to hear the backroom fights and chatter that goes on. I think there could be a whole piece done just on the difference between Jeb Bush and Ron DeSantis's version of all of this and the level of success. I mean, the, the Jeb Bush Florida education story is much different than where we are now with Florida education politics, I think, in some ways. And I think they're two different styles. Yeah. No, I was just to say, you still you still get a little bit of Republicans debating choice in Texas. Right now, Texas is like, I'm like captivated by the coverage of Texas right now, because you still see a little bit of it. 
you know, and it's actually, it's some of it's, it's a little ugly. Yeah, Texas rural Republicans aren't having it. (laughs) They're like, you know, that choice stuff is good for the cities, but it is not great for our areas. And I don't think that Texas is rare in that rural Republicans in a lot of places are very supportive of choice as long as it stays in the cities. As long as it stays down there with those other guys, you know, those kids, the Milwaukee yep. of every state, they'd be for it. Yeah, yeah, for those guys. But when you start trying to bleed it out into their areas, that's the reason why Tennessee and other places, yeah, yeah. you know, had trouble expanding it beyond Nashville and Memphis, you know. So, so you know, as we as we yeah. wrap, I do want to ask about the subtitle of your book is how conservatives won, you know, on school choice. And that's not the exact one I'm paraphrasing, but this one, this idea that they won. And there's it feels like it's very final in the way that, you know, you can think about whether they won. Is it is the passing of the laws the win? And if so, you know, you think about like, in, you know, you mentioned that Indiana, for instance, in 2011 passed a school choice law that allowed, you know, public funds to go to kids going to private schools. And so that's what, that's 12 years ago. And the number of folks in that program is super small, like after 12 years, after more than a decade. So you pass it and then not everybody shows up like you thought they were going to show up. And in, you know, three or four other states now, you pass them in 80%, 70% or 80% of the people that are showing up to participate are not even public school people. So it's not like there's this mass exodus of people running because they want a voucher to go to some something other than what they already have. So where's the win? Where's the real win? Is the win just in getting the laws passed because that's been their dream? That's been the lusty dream that they've had since the 50s is getting all the states to pass this kind of like, <laughs> you know, the, the Milton Friedman program. Is that the win? The laws themselves? That's part of the win. But, you know, it's sort of interesting is that for such a polarizing topic, I have found the one thing that everyone can agree they dislike, which is like the title of my book. I hear from conservatives who don't like the idea that this could at all kill the public schools or, or threaten it or, you know, that's a big thing. And then progressives send me or liberals send me these messages that are like, it is not over yet. That is not past tense, you know, like just very upset. So <laughs> it's like this one area of agreement that I have found for everyone. So one of the things, you know, this was meant to be a little bit deeper than just, can this woman read enrollment reports? So, you know, (laughs) I was kind of surprised because it says in the introduction, the vast majority of American kids are still going to public schools and they are. What I was kind of getting at with, with the title first, what I was kind of getting at was this idea of sort of wonky idea of, well, what is, what is public education then? You know, what is a public school then? Because the traditional model is it's secular and it's tuition free and and it's in theory open to everyone. But at a certain point, if you have, say, a private school in Milwaukee where all of the kids are paying tuition with a voucher and that's tax dollars, at what point is that a public school? And what does that sort of mean? So I had a wonkier thing going on there. And also just this larger question of, does this harm the public system? Does this in some way cause a death of something, you know, that, that, that people all knew what it was, the sort of cornerstone of democracy, as you put it earlier. So that was part of it. And then the idea of winning versus one is something I went back and forth on a little bit. And at one point I said the subtitle to my husband, who is not someone who 
uh, writes about education. And he kind of like was in the kitchen and paused and looked at me. He's like, have, have they won? You know, like, like, were you going to share that with me? Because I'm only hearing this now, you know, that reaction. But one of the things that I was really looking at is not just legislative wins, but this idea of, well, what did we sort of start with? If you can go back to when Milton Friedman wrote the essay, which is when I think we can say that we had a pretty uniform public education system, at least in theory. You know, you could say what a traditional public school was and people knew. To now, where you can talk about getting a very different public education in Florida versus Washington State, where I'm from, where you can talk about going and having your education paid for by the state in Florida and never setting foot in a traditional public school. To me, that is such a journey. That's such a radical change from where we started that that to me is the win, you know, and enrollment numbers can ebb and flow. And I didn't mean that to be literally all the kids are over here, but this idea that it could be so different in one place from another and from where we started. And then with the legal history, these court cases, when you started, the Supreme Court was very much leaning towards not having state aid to private schools. You know, I mean, people who were who were looking for school vouchers in the 50s and 60s, you know, Virgil Bloom and, and those people, we're talking about very small amounts of money, very small things that they wanted. Like, could you just pay for the textbooks at a Catholic school, you know? And now we're talking about what we have today and the Supreme Court saying, yeah, this is this is all good with us. And maybe next they'll sign off on religious charter schools. I mean, to me, that is that's a stunning number of, of victories and primarily led by conservatives. So that's a very long answer. No, it's a good answer. I mean, it makes me want someone to tell. You're like, no, I don't no, agree it's with like, you. No, I get it. And <laughs> I just, I, I want, because this is what I think the win would be for conservatives. If 50% of American children were doing something other than unionized, industrialized, district-based enrollment schools. If we got 50% of the kids into micro schools, voucher schools, religious schools, if we gave rebirth to Catholic schools, if, you know, Catholic schools largely believed that charters killed them and they were closing at some astronomical rate every year, the number of Catholic schools closing as Charter schools were on the incline. Catholic schools were on the decline. So a win would be like reopening a bunch of Catholic schools, you know, across the country and having more parents that would want an alternative educational arrangement. The one thing that's hard for me to get over on that, the reason you were always able to sell school choice for specifically low-income families is because they were living in left-behind districts, meaning districts that everybody left to go places so that they could build new societies where they really liked their public schools, right? Like, you know, the suburbs and the exurbs and whatever. There's a lot of those people that don't want a voucher and don't need a voucher, which why it was very easy to pass vouchers when the idea was this is to help the poor kids in the city. This is good for Milwaukee, right? And maybe Racine. But, you know, not good for Madison or yeah. anywhere else in the, you know, in the state. So the win, it seems to me very hard. The win, if the win is passing laws, congratulations, we've passed laws. Winning some lawsuits, congratulations, we did that. And both, by the way, the traditional system, 
has been experimenting with all different kinds. Like I said, since the 60s and the 70s, all different kinds of educational arrangements. I feel like I live in a hotbed of that here with open enrollment and uh, interdistrict magnet schools and, you know, free schools. You talked to Joe Nathan. Joe Nathan started one of the nation's first free schools where, you know, I won't even go into what that is. It's just like, you know, they had schools without walls. So there's a good one of conservative version of that. But I do think the enrollment is the is the goal of all of them. Can we get more kids out of that system into a different system? Which is why I think there's a lot of push right now for look at all these people doing micro schools when it's like five people, really. You know, look at all these people. Like, like there's this huge movement. It's <laughs> it's taking, we're having a wave, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you look at the numbers and you go, hmm, that doesn't quite feel like a wave. Feels more like a spurt, but okay. The micro school thing is a little... Interesting, because it's basically like just a homeschooling co-op, you know, with a nicer, fancier. It is. And I support it. This is the other thing. I sound critical of these things. But no, I don't I don't I don't attach like a percentage to it, because look at how much when I think about the percentages, look at how much charter schools have changed. You know, arguably charter schools have had a far greater effect on the public school system in far, as far as changing the model and, you know, getting kids enrolled and all of that. And it's uneven, right? You know, in Washington, I think in Washington state, I think there's like 16 charter schools and there's a cap of like 30. You know, this is not a big change for Washington state and yet people fiercely oppose it. It's kind of interesting. But if you look at, you know, New Orleans and DC and Philly and, you know, charter schools have had a huge effect, but we're talking about 7.5% mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm of kids. So to me, it's not necessarily a percentage, but I have heard some school choice advocates talk about 20 to 30%, you know, in private school choice options. Would that be so bad? I don't know if it would be so bad, but it would be a radical change for the system. So to me, the fact that that's even possible now, that to me is the victory. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, for people to watch out, if you're listening to this, one way to get the win on the enrollment is to enroll a bunch of people that are already in that other arrangement. So if you have like 80% of your people already in private school and suddenly they take your voucher, that voucher is wildly successful. You can write a whole bunch of stories about how wildly successful the program is because look at all these people that showed up to take it. Well, I mean, listen, if someone's going to offer to pay my mortgage, you know, like tomorrow, you know, I might go along with that and want to do it. Anyways, I really appreciate this. I loved, I knew that you were writing this. It took a long time. I was following you on social media as you were writing it. And I was thinking, oh my God, she feels very productive. And you were making us all feel bad as writers because you would, you know, say every day, you know, I did, here are the 18 books that I read today. And <laughs> here are all the chapters that I wrote or whatever. And, and you're a parent, you know, and, you know, you got other stuff going on. So uh, I don't know what you, what kind of steroids you were taking as you were writing this book, but it's deep. <laughs> coffee. <laughs> coffee. Lots and lots of coffee. What? 23 chapters, <laughs> you know, deep, rich, 23 chapters. Yeah, lots of coffee. Not religious to any side, any particular side or whatever is very much a narrative storytelling with a lot of journalistic integrity to it. So I found it very hard to challenge you on much of anything because you you tried to be so fair in the book and everything. <laughs> I, I both appreciate that and also like how you said it is almost a criticism. <laughs> you made it hard for me. <laughs> like, you were so fair. It gives me nothing to work with. Yeah, you made it hard for me. You know, like I like to find the thing that I can just like say, oh, 
you got it wrong. And the most I could do is razz you a little bit about the charter part of things, just as a Minnesotan. But. Only people in Minnesota are going to think that you even had that. And there are everybody else to be like, that chartered school thing, man. No. We're so nice about our, <laughs> our pushback or whatever, but we definitely desperately cling on to the things that we invented because we're Wobegon, you know, like we invented early college and open enrollment. And, you know, some might even say magnet schools, even though there's an argument about where the first magnet actually was. But we like to say it's us. Anyways, I appreciate you so much. Thank you for coming on. And when you write the next thing or if you ever have anything, please come back to the show. We would love to talk to you again. Thanks for having me, Chris. The Citizen Stewart Show is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. I'm Chris Citizen Stewart. You can follow me at Citizen Stewart. You can follow Ravi at Ravi M. Gupta. You can follow all of the Branch's podcasts at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so you can join us every Tuesday for more of The Citizen Stewart Show.